Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How can parents help their kids make the most of their studying time? And why is it okay for kids not to like their parents when it comes to studying? Barbara Oakley is a distinguished engineering professor at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Her work focuses on the complex relationships between neuroscience and social behaviors, a focus that has driven her curiosity about how people, especially kids, learn how to learn. As a parent who struggles with getting their kids to study, Barbara reminds us that it's okay for kids not to like us when it comes to studying. Other kids and teachers will tell your kids what they want to hear rather than what is best for them. Parents know intuitively what is best for their kids in the long run, but in the short term, that can pose challenges. Growing up disliking math and science because she wasn't good at it has helped drive Barbara's career in practical teaching and academic research. She has found that people can perform a mind shift, which can help unlock your hidden potential regardless of your age or background. Finally, as many other prominent guests have addressed with kids and adults on my show, Barbara talks about why it is not always a good strategy to follow your passion. Doing so can limit your options and ability to learn new things that you think are too hard, but instead could propel your life and career further than you ever imagined. Please enjoy my conversation with Barbara Oakley. Well, Professor, Dr. Barbara Oakley. I'm not quite sure how, how to reference you, but because you wear so many hats, but um, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And I'm sure the listeners can tell in the sound of my voice, I am really excited to have you on. Um, you've been somebody I've been following for years and reading. And um, lo and behold, you're one of the first guests in my own neighborhood. You, you um, are a professor at Oakland University here in Rochester, Michigan not far from where I live in commerce. So um, it's just an absolute pleasure to have you on. So thank you for making the time for us. Oh, it's a privilege. And besides, it's so exciting to share with someone who's so close to home. (laughs) Well, why don't we start with there? Like, walk us through, walk us, our audience through who you are, what you do, and how you kind of came into um, academia, because you have gone through so many life transitions, which is a, a really a, been a focal point of this show, this podcast, these conversations I've had with people the last two years. So I think my audience, the audience is going to find that very interesting. And then, then we're going to get into some deep parenting stuff, which I'm, I'm really excited for. So I'll let you take it from there. Well, so I got into academia sort of, um, how do they say this, back asswards? Uh, <laughs> that's an appropriate term to use. Um, a lot of times people go into academia as 
sort of the pinnacle of their doctoral studies. So they've they've focused on uh, intently on one area, and they've gotten better and better and better at a specialized portion of that area. So, uh, and usually people go into academia when they've, I mean, they've, they've kind of done it for years. So it takes you like 10 years or something uh, past your high school diploma of further uh, academia to, you know, become, uh, you know, acquire a doctorate and so forth. But that means that a lot of times people don't have real world experience. And this is a real challenge when it comes to academia, because you have all this wealth of theory, but not a lot of practical necessarily insight into what, you know, what you're doing and how it applies to everyday people. But for me, I was terrible at math and science when I was growing up. I mean, as in, I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. So and we should probably let people know you're a professor of engineering. So you just said you yeah. were terrible at math and science, but here you are, a professor at a very you know high-ranking school, o- OU, as we call it here locally, and you're a professor of engineering. Well, not, it, what's, what's even more um, astonishing is I'm a distinguished professor <laughs> in engineering. I don't know, but, but I think this is also... Uh, a really uh, a uplifting message for many of us that you can grow up thinking that you have no capability in an area. And I wasn't, in, it wasn't until I was in my late twenties that I, you know, I enlisted in the army right out of high school. I'd studied a language at the defense language Institute and, um, and actually learned Russian. I'd followed my passion, learned Russian really well. And then it was like, you know, I go out to get a job when I want to leave the military, and nobody's interested in my sole professional expertise, which was the ability to speak Russian. And what I hadn't done was I, what I had done was like look inside me, what do I want? What I hadn't done was look out in the world and what does the world need? You know, which is common sense, but you're not told that by people. They they all tell you. Follow your own passion. And this is why I tell people now, don't just follow your passion, broaden your passion. And if I had looked a little more broadly um, when I was early, when I was a young person, I could have gained some of the, you know, just kind of gotten some of these additional um, skills and insights um, you know, I always thought, well, I can't learn math. I just cannot learn math. Well, actually, I could learn math. Um, and when I was 26 and I was getting out of the military, I just kind of realized that all my friends who had some kind of technical capability were getting great jobs, and I was not. So I thought, you know, I'm supposed to be open to new adventures and new perspectives mentally. I mean, at least that's what I had pictured myself as being that kind of person. But then I realized that when push came to shove, if I really meant that, and why didn't I try to see if I could learn in math and science, even though I had always thought I couldn't do those things. So 
at age 26, I went to the university. I started with the lowest possible level of math, which was remedial high school algebra, and slowly began climbing my way upwards. And obviously, it was successful, but it wasn't easy. If I had known then, though, what I know now about learning, I really could have made it so much easier on myself. And that's that's sort of my mission in life now, is to try to help people realize some of the tools and tricks of how their brain works so they can learn more easily and efficiently and help their kids learn more easily and efficiently. And so that's that's why I'm here. <laughs> and. And to that point, I think that's a good lead in because really what you are known for in the industry is your courses about learning how to learn, not only for adults, but for um, kids and teens as yet as well. And, you know, most, most of the audience knows my situation with having this unique situation of having triplets plus one and, and, and how the, this transaction, transaction, transition into middle school this year has been somewhat challenging uh, for my triplets. And and that was another reason why I was excited to have you on because I'm I'm going back to my roots and, and dusting off things I've learned from you throughout the years. And I think maybe, maybe that's an, the next place to go is before we hit record, we were having a kind of a side conversation about, and you made this point about um, it's okay for for parents not to be liked. Can you expand on that? I know that you have a story behind there that that I think would be well worth uh, sharing. Well, I think as parents, um, we can see in the long run what is potentially going to be good for our children. And that is often not what kids want to hear right now. So when kids have friends or they have teachers, their friends and their teachers will tell them what they want to hear right now will make them feel better. But it's not they what makes them feel better right now is not necessarily what's going to be best for them in the long run. So and even teachers who you'd you'd think would know better. And teachers are understandably motivated by why did they go into their own area of expertise? And it's really affirming for them when they can talk others into going into their own area of expertise, right? Because, you know, it means they've made the right choice, obviously. And so even really um, genuinely decent human beings can... Um, kind of encourage, uh, unfortunately, encourage um, young people to go into disciplines that can actually, in the long run, um, mean that it's very difficult for them to make a good living uh, for themselves and their family. But for me, so I I went through all these difficult years and I, I changed my brain. I learned in math and science don't get me wrong, I would not trade my background of knowing language um, for the world. I, I think it was invaluable for me. But I am also eternally grateful that I took that risk and made that change um, and, and you know, that intellectual leap of faith to try and learn in math and science because 
the the reality is that um, the the world is heading in a more technological direction, and if we want our kids to have all professional doors open for them so that they can make a choice about what careers they really want to pursue, we want to make sure they've got the technical background to to uh, to be able to handle uh, a technological career should they so desire to do so. And the the problem is that like if you let kids just decide whatever they want to learn, you know, sort of free range learning, whatever they feel they're good at, that's what they're going to be. Uh, what can happen that that's a little like saying, um, it's okay if you don't learn to read or you don't learn to write, or you don't learn how to do math, or, you know, there's just some things that people should be expected to be able to be to do in today's modern society, and to be a reasonable and respectable citizen. So I'm going off aside. So the main point that I want to make is that I wanted our daughters to have a good background in math, uh, when they grew up, because I knew that that would leave them with all career doors open. And if they didn't get that good background in math, they'd still have some career doors, but not all career doors. So I I put them in a, a program called Kuman Mathematics, which for yes. reform mathematicians, it's like horrors, <laughs> you know. But actually, we now understand from neuroscience that this is probably one of the, you know, most thoughtfully put together programs that with a little bit of extra practice, 20 minutes or so a day, as Kuhlman recommends, uh, children can learn the language of math really well. So I, I had our daughters in this for about 10 years apiece. Now, here's the interesting thing. So, like, our older daughter was terrible at math. I mean, she just did not have a natural knack for numbers. So, I'd be like, you know, here's two bunnies, and here's two more bunnies. How many bunnies do you have? You know, I would <laughs> tease her about that when she was in college, uh, but uh, which she did not take very well. <laughs> yeah, um, she she probably didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, but but. So we struggled for those extra 20 minutes a day of practice with math over 10 years. And she recently finished her medical residency at Stanford. Wow. So here's this little girl. And I kid you not, she would be one of those little girls that characterized herself as super good at language kinds of things. And there is some reasonable evidence that that little girls and little boys have the same analytical skills, but little girls are often a little more advanced verbally. So, you know, by listening to this idea of follow your passion, she would have thought, oh, I'm better at language. I should pursue that. But uh, but we insisted that she she lift both sides of her intellectual capabilities, and it served her in very good stead. Now, our younger daughter, on the other hand, she just she was she thought of herself as the artist and indeed she went through and she got her first degree in studio art you know bachelor's degree in studio art and he every day for 10 years it was a battle how do we get rachel to do her math 
And so every day, you know, and it wasn't like I was perfect, like every single day, um, you know, and sometimes we'd go off on vacation or something like that. But I made sure for about 10 years, we did that extra 20 minutes of math a day. She went, she graduated from the university, did really well, but went out to the job world and found that, guess what? <laughs> it's not really easy to find uh, the kind of interesting work she was looking for with only an art degree, a studio art degree. Not that that's, you know, that's a wonderful degree, but it's really hard to get, you know, a good professional uh, job of the kind that she was looking for. So she decided to go back and get her master's degree in statistics. And I, I met the son of her graduate advisor when I was in Vietnam recently. And he said, my father usually just doesn't get graduate students unless they're from overseas because most American students just don't have the math capability. And it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> not my daughter, because I made sure she got some of that same training that, that overseas students often get with extra practice with math. And so she graduated like with a 3.95 GPA with her graduate degree in statistics, now has a great job and loves her work. And so I think the moral of the story for all of us is, you know, just do little short, if you have short bursts where you're asking your children to do something that they may not particularly like, it's perfectly okay. Because you're not in it for the short run. You're not in it for them liking you right now. You're in it for them to, to be successful and happy in the long run. And if it means that you have these little short bursts where they're not particularly happy with you or not loving the subject, it's okay. Because, I mean, kids don't love learning to ride a bicycle. I mean, they love falling down and scraping their knees and, you know, breaking uh, uh, whatever, but they go through it because they know it's going to turn out really good in the long run. It's just a math. It's not like a physical skill. It's a mental skill and it takes longer to learn, but it is really, really worth it um, to get that. If you have the math background, everything else comes easier programming, science, biology, physics, all that kind of stuff. So if you just focus on getting your kids uh, a, a reasonable math background, the other things will all kind of fall, fall into place as they get older. That's really that's really interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, but ironically, we had our kids in Kuman as well. I think probably like First, second, third grade, maybe, and then, mm -hmm. and then we haven't had had them in since then. So I'm interested, Barbara. What what grades or ages did you have your two girls in Kuman? I probably had them in there. Well, started about age three to about age twelve, thirteen, right around there. Um, and as they got, you know, but it it actually, I know. Uh, parents who have, for example, you know, I know one woman in Valencia, Spain, and she was flunking math. Uh, and so her parents put her when she was in seventh grade or the equivalent of seventh grade into Kuman. And she went from bottom of the class to top of the class. 
um, and remained very good at math from then on. So she's probably started around age 12 or 13, and that's a one-off sort of thing. But the reality is that um, learning math is a lot like learning language. And if you just start giving it some consistent daily practice, it consistent will reps. fall into place. Yep, yep. So, because that's the one thing I remember about Kuman is that going back to your point where you, they they really want you doing that twenty minutes a day. It doesn't. It, it's that consistency, that mental, those mental reps, if you will. Um, right. Did you did you ever run into the issue where the style of math that they teach in Kuman is different than the style of math they were teaching in in the classroom in their normal school? Yes. And I just didn't care, um, you know, because think about it this way. What mathematics educators will often tell you is there's many different ways to get the right solution, except that when it comes to how they are explaining how to solve problems, then, then they only want you to have your children solving it the way they tell you to solve it. So it's like that doesn't compute. Actually, there really are many ways of solving problems. Um, when uh, teachers say things like, well, we, we don't want them to get the answer uh, too quickly. They need to understand it uh, before they, you know, they really move ahead. Actually, that is directly antithetical to insights from neuroscience that say you, by practice, you gain an, a conceptual understanding. Many teachers just don't, you know, they're busy enough thinking and things. They don't have the insight in what is actually happening in the brain when you're learning math um, and that practice i mean it's it's like saying if you understand a language that's the golden key no actually you can understand spanish as much as you want but you're not going to be able to speak it unless you practice it while you're learning it so and of course a a um, math teacher will say oh no no that's a completely different um kettle of fish but as uh, an expert in both a language study, and in mathematics, I can tell you that it's not a different kettle of fish. Both language and learning a language and learning in mathematics involves a, uh, a, a deep system of the brain called the basal ganglia. And basal ganglia is involved in procedural learning. And people will dismiss this as, oh, that's just rote learning. So your rote learning of the multiplication tables, for example, is very bad because you can always look it up. Actually, rote learning of the multiplication tables is quintessentially important because it helps you internalize a feel for the number system. And that can only be done through lots of practice using that basal ganglia procedural system so that you can say T times four is eight without even having to think about it, you know. And using this habitual system means that you can do a lot of things without having to think about it. And when you have more difficult ideas, 
you can do the the other stuff super easy, um, you know, because you can do it without thinking. You develop that procedural basal ganglia uh, set of understanding, and that only comes through lots and lots of practice. So, how did you get hooked into learning how to learn? Oh. <laughs> uh. Obviously, it's got to be something related to, to to having your own kids, but I think there's there's got to be more to it than that, right? What I I think so I get these intellectual itches that I have. I just you know something bothers me, and it can bother me for years, and I'm always trying to figure out how to scratch it. In other words, what is the solution? So, like my latest intellectual itch involves the <laughs> um the idea of when you are relaxing your brain in default mode that actually is um uh connected to um creativity but also to anxiety but it's not supposed to be pre, uh, related to anxiety. If you look at one body of research, it says it's not related to anxiety. It's related to safety. And the, the other says default mode, mind wandering is related to anxiety. So I'm trying to reconcile these two different bodies of research. And it's this big intellectual uh, bug that actually arose because I was just in Nepal at a um, Buddhist monastery and speaking with... Um, about meditation there and th this whole issue of that default mode network and um, whether it calms you or whether it uh, makes you upset is a is a big deal so i'm i'm going off sorry on a tangent no so. I, that's this is actually really interesting because this is something i personally struggle with and know others that do that are like the quintessential quintessential type a personality hard driving or whatever we don't know how to shut it off. Like, and if you just give me five or 10 minutes to sit down and do nothing, I will probably fall more on that anxious side than I will be able to relax. And Teresa will tell you the same thing. It's like, yes, that's Paul. He can, he does not know how to, does not know how to relax anymore. Was, and see, that's, what's interesting to me is um, it turns out we've always thought that stress is an aberrant reaction, a bad reaction to something bad that happens. and you're really stressed it's it's an aberrant reaction when good things happen it's it's a really it's a fascinating um you know it's like you can't figure out when you are safe and so you're always pressing the pedal to um anxiety because you well anyway i'm trying to figure that out i will be able to uh, explain it i suspect much uh, better in a couple months after i've spoken with a number of neuroscientists so but anyway you know to go back was our original question that i was going to circle back to before i went off on this tangent um well we were we were talking i had i had asked about how you came to being so interested in learning how to learn. Um, yes, that's right. And the, the real, the essence of it is, so I, I thought I couldn't learn in math and science. I thought I could learn language. 
So I went to the Defense Language Institute, learned language really well. It's not like I'm a natural with languages, but I worked really hard. So it, it had the outcome of making it look like I was a natural language. And so in, let me hang on just a sec. Oh. So um, but then when I decided to learn in math and science, I applied the same techniques that I had used to learn a language, uh, retrieval practice, interleaving, and so forth. And by golly, they work. So, so what is the common factor of learning, whether you're learning math and science or you're learning a language? What's going on underneath that was, that was the common factor? And this always bothered me for like years. And, um, and, and it was always behind my um, trying to figure out, you know, like I, I, I'm very good at explaining things in a very simple way because that's the only way I can understand things. But um, the deeper I dived uh, into the into learning and how the brain learns, the better I could feel myself getting to being able to answer this question of why is learning similar and why also do uh, educators often not see this and, and not recognize what is going on during the learning process that is similar between those, those two seemingly different subjects? So that's, uh, that was the underlying itch, um, as well as just you know, kind of wondering or, or wanting to be able to help people um, to, to learn more effectively. This this is this wasn't even on my list of questions, and this is this is when I know it's a good conversation because it just kind of naturally flows to where it wants to go. But given given that you're a professor at the college level, do you see a lot of kids that just come in un, unprepared, like not knowing how to learn the right way or how to study? Like because that's that's one area that. When I talk to parents, I've had other guests on that have been high school teachers that have retired, that started their own businesses to help kids learn how to study because it's not taught in, you know, middle school or high school level, it seems like these days. It boggles my mind how little students actually know about how to learn effectively. One thing that is quite interesting is if you look at the um, World Economic Forum um, the OECD and what their top 10 skills like for 2015, for 2020, uh, for 2025. In the past, like for 2015 and 2020, they have top skills that involve things like critical thinking, working well with others. But learning, learning how to learn never appeared on their list until the most recent one, what are the top critical skills expected to be needed for 2025? Ah, that's when now suddenly near the top of the, the list is learning. Um, and I think it's just that in the past, we haven't really understood how the brain learns effectively. I mean, there's lots of theories and lots of, but it was very much um, untested and different theories had completely different 
um, you know, like whole language versus, um, you know, phonics and that kind of idea. And so they they go at each other and it didn't matter what the research actually said. Um, people just had their vested interests in which side they believed was right. But now we're beginning to understand from a neural perspective, how does the brain actually learn? And so I think that's why lately learning is becoming, or learning how to learn is becoming much more important, but it still boggles my mind that, that students can go through what, 10 to 16 years of education and never have a single course on how to learn effectively. We pull this stuff down in our brains, but we never teach them how do you learn it effectively. And that, I, I think, needs to change. So we're going to be sure, I'll be sure to, to link in the show notes um, your course for both adults and for kids um, on Coursera. On Coursera. Um, mm-hmm. on how to learn. And then also um, the book that you that you wrote, Learning How to Learn. But I'm thinking from a from a parenting standpoint, and obviously you've been there, your kids are are you know grow a little grown now, but you know, for for parents out there, Barbara, what can they do now to help their kids learn how to learn? So I think that the best thing that they can do is um well, for one thing, if if they go and look at learning how to learn for youth, which is different than plain learning how to learn, and it is free, so you go on Coursera and type in learning how to learn for youth, which is the Arizona, the one, the course that Terry and I did with Arizona State and Greg Hammonds, and, um, and sit and watch this together with your child. So watch like five minutes, you know, one video, one or two videos every day or, you know, in a sequence. And, you know, just look on, enjoy watching it. They're fun. They give you very actionable advice and also advice about what to do, like when your child starts to get frustrated. Because if you try to um, help your child understand how to learn when they're frustrated. Forget it. Forget it. You know, yeah. <laughs> you have to beforehand kind of inoculate them and say, this is this is why frustration happens, and here's how to handle it. And then when the frustrating uh, instance occurs, you can go, see, this is one of those frustrating instances. Let's go out for a walk or let's go, you know, do something different because getting your mind off of it is half of the way past. Um, But also, I would strongly suggest there's a specialization on teaching effectively. And that's a three-course, it's like 15 hours. It took me uh, and my my compadres a year and a half to put this course together. But it's like really quick, super funny. and uh, but it teaches you what is going on when you're in your child's brain when you're learning. It also teaches you some of the the um, it, you know it, it makes me laugh. Teachers will go all oh, those terrible neuroscientists. They got all this jargon. <laughs> They're just terrible with this jargon, and they they exclude us and keep us out. And I'm like, well, guess what? You do the same thing as a teacher. <laughs> You've got all this jargon, you know, formative assessments, summative assessments. There's all this jargon, and it can be hard for a parent to understand teacher how do you jargon. S- 
yeah, I can't ship ship through it all. <laughs> and this course will help you um, understand a lot of the teacher jargon that's being used, but also to understand what's going on in your child's brain to help the, your child. And especially like if your child has ADHD or dyslexia or um, they're on the spectrum, how can you know um, you use insights from neuroscience to help them build on their strengths, which are very real, while minimizing the areas of weakness. And there are ways to do that. So how do we how do how do parents access that course, Barbara? Oh, that's also on Coursera. So just go to Uncommon Sense Teaching, just Google that, and then the three courses will pop up. And you you may think there's a course that's uncommon sense teaching, teaching online. Um, yeah, and a parent might think, well, I'm not teaching online, so I don't need that. Don't that course. <laughs> that's got <laughs> like so much really meaty information about how we form mental frameworks and change our way of thinking about things. So it's a schemas. Um, and that's a really important part. But also when you're, you know, when you're doing things online, which everybody is, it will give you some insight on how to do it a little better. Okay. And just once again, so I have that right, because I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes as well. I'll, I'll find it for everyone is it's uncommon sense learning and common sense teaching. teaching. So let's okay, see. Uh, I'll get that here. So here's this is the um this is the main right here. Let me um put this in where's our there we go. Um so this is the main course. Oops no it's not that I don't know why this is but sometimes when I'll copy things there we go. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure to put that in, in the show notes um, as well. Um, one of the, one of the things that, and, and this is where I know it's a good conversation. And if you're willing, I'm going to have to have you back on because we haven't even touched on one of the, the hot topics. If we shift from parenting to adults, but I want to go back to parenting, but from an adult perspective, one of the things that you talk about and have gone through our career changes and the book that you wrote, uh, Mind Shift, is I think really critical because I've I've read a lot of your work on this. Um, I've read a lot of work by Carol Dweck on mindsets, um, which which is great. Um, so that that, I think- that course um, teaching online talks a lot about mindsets and what's going on from a neural perspective with that. So, so, so you're doing that teaching online, you said. Yes, that's the, uh, so if you go to the Uncommon Sense Teaching Specialization, the, um, let's see, there's MOOC, let, let me uh, copy this link. Because I know that's one thing that, that at least from my perspective, like Teresa and I are always talking about, um, to, to our kids about having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I'm not quite sure they really understand what it is that we're talking about. Is there an easy way to explain that to kids that even like our age, like we, so our, our triples will be 12 on actually next week. And then our plus one is Mackenzie is 10. Here's the challenge. When people actually go and look, for example, at how well people do on tests. So like your standard, um, 
SAT score out of high school or ACT, when they study those, what they find is uh, what you would think is that the people who do really well in the tests are they're going to have um, a growth mindset, right? I mean, you would think, but they don't. I mean, it turns out that having a growth mindset has nothing to do with how well you do on um, like college preparatory tests and so forth. And in fact, there there's some reasonably good evidence that um, growth mindset can make a difference with small populations of really at-risk children. But if you if you look, for example, at what um, my, you know, I had like the anti-growth mindset as a child. You know, I was convinced. I remember sitting in front of my chemistry teacher and it, it was basically like I was sitting there going, okay, dare you, see if you can put something in my brain. And of course, you know, he couldn't because I I think you wrote that in one of your books. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Poor Mr. Fry. Uh, um, but the, it, it's, I mean, it doesn't help kids to say, well, you just can't do it yet. And you can change your brain. Doesn't really, I mean, aside from, because you're not crawling inside their brain and actually changing their mentality. To my mind, and I think there's some pretty good evidence for this, what really helps kids is teaching them concrete strategies for how to learn more effectively. Uh, um, that gets that growth mindset without just sort of pontificating in ways that are in some uh, sense uh, ineffectual. Because it's kind of like saying, well, get a good sleep tonight. You'll do much better on the test. Well, how do you get a good sleep? And why should I get a good sleep? You know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help me to hear the parental um, kind of thing. I think it it is far more helpful to, you know, to actually give concrete insights from research that gives students the practical skills. Because if if you had told me as a kid, um, oh, yeah, Barb, you can learn in math and science. You just don't know it yet. Would have said, well, you know, um, words to that I probably couldn't repeat on the show, you know, because <laughs> it doesn't matter. I I know that I can't, and you're not going to change my mind by just telling me these things. It was getting out into um, into the real world and having the real world hoist itself off on me and and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter whether you feel you can do it or not. You're just not going to get very the kinds of jobs you want if you're going to continue with the mindset you have. So I I I am not um, you know, I think growth mindset arose from uh, from a good place in the heart, but I don't think that spending millions and millions of dollars, and in fact, you know, there's uh, by school districts is actually a very, you know, it's a way of kind of getting out of the hard work of good teaching because all you have to do is tell teachers, oh, see, just wave your magic wand, say that they can change your minds. And it's super easy. And it's, you know, and it, you know, and perhaps for what I could say that I'm being unfair, but if you look at a lot of the growth mindset, um, um, workshops and so forth, really, it's spending a whole lot of time 
saying you can't do it yet and not bringing up any of the research that calls to question, uh, as a lot of research has, whether um, the money spent on growth mindset are actually worth it. That's really that's really interesting. That's uh, I was I was wondering what your take on that was. So, it, so if I if I go back to the point you just made, and I, I jotted this down to focus on what helps kids to to teach them concrete strategies to learn. So going back to to being a, a selfish parent for the for for a moment again is what would what would one that you would I guess recommend parents go out and try to do with their kids to try to give them something concrete, some strategy um, to help them learn better? So the the number one strategy I hear from literally thousands of people all around the world, I mean, over, if you count all the language versions, it's well over 4 million uh, learners on learning how to learn. I'm glad that and you pointed what, that out because I I I I wanted to make sure that people knew that this this is not you you and your team have put in a ton of work on this and the fact that you've gotten you know 4 million people to go through this I think it's just around the world too is is amazing. And it's it's actually uh I wish it was us, you know, but it, it's not us, it's people finding it. Uh, finding great value in it and recommending it to their friends. So, um, you know, so the number one thing is people absolutely find great value in the Pomodoro technique. And this is a very simple technique where you just uh, teach children to eliminate all distractions for a few, remember that short bit of time, so that means no cell phones, nothing popping up on their computer. Give them a timer. There's, uh, there are uh, tomato. This was uh, devised initially by Francesco Cirillo, an Italian. Italian. And so he devised this tomato-shaped timer. Uh, and of course, in Italian, uh, tomato is called pomodoro. And so this little cute little tomato-shaped timer... Um, is what he recommended using, but you can use any timer. And it's when you just, once you've cleared off all distractions, you set your timer for 25 minutes, you work as intently as you can for 25 minutes. Then you take a five minute break without looking at your cell phone. So when I say a break, a relaxing break could be something like um, have a cup of, um, you know, peppermint tea or uh, walk around a little bit or just sit and look out the window. Anything that does not return your focus, because what you're actually doing is, remember before we had vaguely touched on the, the vagus nerve and the default nerve network in their relationship, um, you need to be focusing for 25 minutes, although it's okay if you do want to go longer. Um, but it, uh, 25 minutes is a really good rule of thumb. And then five minutes of default mode break. So you're just letting your mind wander, and that's helping with consolidation processes. Your brain is like putting together what you've just learned. And so if you can teach your child to use a Pomodoro, like when they first get home from school, 
um, that they should do a Pomodoro or at a set time, um, they're in, they start and they do a Pomodoro. If your child is younger than about 15 or maybe, you know, it depends because like a 13-year-old, some 13-year-olds can concentrate better than I can, you know. But um, generally for younger children, um, a good rule of thumb is whatever their age is, plus one. So like if they're nine years old, they can do a Pomodoro for like 10 minutes. So nine years old plus one. Um, but it's a little nonlinear. So as they get into their teenagerhood, you just kind of watch and see what you think a good time uh, limit is. But teaching them to focus without distraction and without, you know, mind wandering for just those short periods is invaluable, will really help them move ahead. Um, and then teaching them about things like focused and diffuse. And as they get frustrated, they need to go into the default mode network, the diffuse mode. Um, and when you say diffuse, diffuse mode, does that mean just backing away? Backing away and not focusing on things. So just letting your mind wander. I'm glad that you brought up the Pomodoro because I'm a big fan of Scott Hanselman, who I've had on the show before. And that's where I first learned about this Pomodoro probably close to 10 years ago. But I've also, I've always wondered, why does that work so well? Like if you oh. can get in that habit of doing it, like research, anything I've read on it, it's like, this is like what you should be doing. But like, why? Why does it work so well, Barbara? <laughs> so there's a number of reasons why. Um, so first off, when you even just think about something that you don't want to do or don't like, it activates a portion of the brain, the insular cortex that that experiences pain. So your Such brain is math. <laughs> yeah. Or or like taxes. Let's say you can do your taxes. Well, that's my area goes, of expertise. So I actually look forward to doing taxes. <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, my husband's really good at that. So, um, but let's, you know, just pick something that, but it's obviously not my area of expertise, but, you know, whatever a child might not um, be so fond of, as soon as they change their thinking to something different, the pain in the brain goes away. So, um, so what the Pomodoro does is, um, they found that the pain in the brain, if you work through it, it will disappear in about 20 minutes. The Pomodoro is 25 minutes long. So for, you know, at least for adults and those doing the full Pomodoro, it gets you past that uh, feeling of, oh, I don't like this, into this mode of, oh, okay, I'm kind of in the flow. And that's why you can end up doing it longer. But there's plenty of evidence that switching, if you're multitasking, as in task switching, so you are reading yeah, a book, but really bad. you're <laughs> going off and you know looking at your cell phone, and you're going back and forth. Research shows you you lose anywhere from thirty to forty percent of your productivity by doing this multitasking. So the Pomodoro teaches you how to not multitask for limited periods of time and get you used to that. So you're able to be more effective that way. And um and it's it's um 
it's it's really a, a helpful it, you know our a lot of what's going on now in you know what uh social media and so forth is meant to distract you so if you just teach yourself not to be distracted for brief periods of time it'll get your brain back so that it can uh, work more effectively you know when it is when you do want to need, uh, to use it to to focus with so you know there's several different really good things that the pomodoro teaches you to do that are right in line with what we know from neuroscience to be, um, you know, very helpful. Well, I mean, to me, like you just stole my my show because th- th- I, that was like one of my questions I wanted to ask you, like why that works so well. And so I'm glad that you explained that for everyone, and and I hope that you know they'll give it a try. And I'll put some additional information in the show notes on on that as well. But like I was probably saying a few minutes ago, probably longer than a few minutes ago, I could keep you here all day, but I know I only have you for a finite period of time. So hopefully we'll get you back on to talk about a little bit deeper dive into your career and how to make career shifts, because that's usually a topic that that um, people that listen to the show are are really interested in. Um, but you know, to, to wrap up, I, I want to ask you the closing question that I, I ask all my guests, which is, you know, you have you have a unique family. I'll let you explain it here in a second. But what is the best thing about being a parent? Well, well, I can tell you what it is uh, right now is uh, staying here at our daughter's house. You know, we're in our trailer beside her house, awaiting the birth of our grandchild. Oh, that will be happening this month. So sometime in the next 20 to 30 days, we will be grandparents. So that is one of the fantastic blessings of being a parent. And uh, I, I just have to say it, it has made our whole lives, you know, our, our children have made our whole lives. They, they are uh, it, not forgetting about the, the I mean, I'm a workaholic. I love what I do. I love learning about learning and learning about how the brain works. But always having that that background of my wonderful family uh, is that's what makes everything worthwhile. So just don't forget your family. Uh, but I think most people nowadays know that their family is super important. Well, you know, I already know my my when when you when you come back on next year, just be prepared. My final my closing question for you is what's the best thing about being a grandparent? So I'll I'll, ah. I'll, I'll give you some time to get that one under under your under your uh, feet if you will. But that well, I that's can awesome. I'll give you a clue that it's <laughs> it's spoiling them rotten and then giving them back. Yeah, yeah, I experienced that <laughs> often with uh with with uh our sets of grandparents. So, but uh, Barbara, I cannot thank you enough for, for being on the show and, and, and going through the detail of, of learning how to learn, because I know that this is a, a very um, hot topic, not only for my, myself and my wife, Teresa, but a lot of the parents that I work with, that I talk to, we're all kind of struggling with this. So um, I know that, that getting this information out um, is going to be great. And, uh, we can't, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to that next conversation already. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. So have a wonderful uh, holiday season and I'll have plenty to uh, share with you when I return. Thanks, Barbara. Okay. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.